Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an attempt by Senator Lindsey Graham to mitigate the political damage facing House and Senate Republicans in this upcoming midterm election from the Supreme Court decision to ban abortions. This lifelong bachelor, who appears not to have had any close relationship with women, has taken on an issue critical to women's health and autonomy by introducing a bill today that proposes a federal ban on abortion after 15 weeks. Joining us to discuss this attempt at damage control for the GOP is Amanda Marcotte, a feminist author, blogger and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America and Truth Itself, and we will discuss her latest article at Salon, So Much for Leave It to the States, Republicans Test the Waters with a Federal Abortion Ban Bill. Then, with what's left of the global order deteriorating before our eyes, we'll examine what can be done to avoid a worsening of relations with China and possibly Russia, although prospects for that are getting bleaker, and speak with Stephen Walt, the Robert and Renee Belfort Professor of International Affairs at Harvard University. He's the author of a number of books, including The Origins of Alliances, Revolution and War, Taming American Power, The Global Response to U.S. Primacy, and his latest book is The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy, and he is the co-author of an article in Foreign Affairs, How to Build a Better Order, Limiting Great Power Rivalry in an Anarchic World. Then finally, with a shift to the right in the Swedish elections as one of the most tolerant countries in the world takes an anti-immigrant turn, we will speak with Sherry Berman, a professor of political science at Barnard College of Columbia University, whose research interests include European history and politics, the development of democracy, populism and fascism, and the history of the left. She's the author of Democracy and Dictatorship, From the Ancien Regime to the Present Day, and we will discuss the gains by the far right in Europe with Giorgia Maloney poised to become leader in Italy, along with the rise of Vox in Spain. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Amanda Marcotte, a feminist author, blogger, and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America, and Truth Itself. And the latest article at Salon is So Much for Leave It to the States, Republicans Test the Waters with a Federal Abortion Ban. Welcome to Background Briefing, Amanda Marcotte. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Amanda. And uh, today, Senator Lindsey Graham held a press conference and offered up a bill for a nationwide abortion ban after 15 weeks. And it's clearly a political move, is it not, to limit some of the damage from the Dobbs decision, which has motivated a lot of women in this country to vote. And they're certainly not going to vote Republican. Yeah, I mean, he thinks he's being clever, trying to find a way to both please the anti-abortion base while minimizing the damage that's coming from the fact that I think Republicans were apparently genuinely surprised at how angry um, this is making your average American and how much it's motivating people to turn out for the midterms. So he offered this bill that's bans abortions after 15 weeks in an effort to be like to and and if you watch the press conference he definitely portrayed it as we're just moderate and reasonable and this is the same kind of limits that you see in countries like france and england which isn't true um at all um you know the people who say that are 
are are shading the truth to outright lying is where I'd put them on that spectrum. But I closer to outright lying. They're they're definitely deceiving people about what abortion law looks like in Western Europe and especially with Graham who compared his bill to Western Europe without acknowledging that his bill bans abortions for fetal abnormalities, which is not the case in all these countries that he was comparing the United States to. Well, he outright lied, didn't he, saying that uh, the Democrats want abortion up until the moment of birth? Yeah, this is a lie that I think Republicans are trying to make truth through repetition. They all say it all the time. It's it's a total lie. And as I say in the article, the Kaiser Family Foundation addressed this a couple of years ago in a really extensive article. They said that there's there's no that's that's always been illegal in the United States, and it's also not done. It's like trying to ban you know space aliens from boogieing on the moon. Like okay. Like, the issue is they use this rhetoric about banning abortion to the moment of birth, which, again, no one does. That's not a thing. It's not real. It's a fantasy. They use this rhetoric to then turn around and justify abortion bans that ban abortions that people actually get because they need them. Um, They say, you know, they invoke this myth of the 40-week abortion to ban, as we saw today, abortions at 15 weeks, which is actually 11 weeks after the missed period. So we're not, I, I, I can't even explain how dishonest and unfair and, and cruel this is to women because it implies that there are women out there that wait until they're 30 weeks pregnant and then just sort of waltz into an abortion clinic and waltz out the next day or the next hour, you know, as if it never happened. And that's just not how any of this works. Like abortions later in the second trimester are very expensive. They're very time consuming and they're very painful and nobody does them on a lark. Nobody ever gets an abortion on a lark, but like it, these aren't abortions of, choice. This isn't like somebody who's like eight weeks pregnant and just doesn't want to be. And of course, the other lie of Lindsey Graham's was about Europe and comparing his bill to what is normal in Europe. And the US has, since the Dobbs decision, is a completely outlier in Europe, except for Malta and Poland. But let's talk a little bit about your, what you say in your article about Brett Kavanaugh in his concurrence with the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Supreme Court decision where he, he assured people that the court's decision today does not outlaw abortion throughout the United States. And uh, he basically says it does not prevent the numerous states that readily allow abortion from continuing to readily allow abortion. So he does apparently mention the possibility that Congress can always pass a national ban. So here you have the national ban, but it's not going to pass, right? Um, it will the second that Republicans retake the House or take retake Congress and the presidency. And in fact, I would say it's probably not even going to be a 15 week ban. Like the goal here is uh, is banning all abortions and they will push this as far as they think they can get away with politically. So you could easily see a situation in 2024 where Trump wins or steals the White House, Republicans have a congressional majority. And honestly, probably one of the first things they will do is ban abortions nationwide because their hope would be that by the time the next election comes around, people, they will have been able to successfully change the conversation to something else. Or considering that Trump doesn't really intend to win in 2024 so much as just steal it again, you know, successfully steal it this time. I mean, they may think that they're past having to deal with voters at all. So we're in a really bad situation on this. And it is, I mean, you can't untangle the attacks on abortion rights from the attacks on democracy because 
the attacks on democracy are why they're getting away with the attacks on abortion. And the attacks on abortion are kind of why they are going after democracy, because they can't pass these kinds of draconian, inhumane bills and still answer to the voters. Unless, of course, you're in Mississippi, which is where this Dobbs decision came from. I mean, I just find it so extraordinary that Jackson, the city of Jackson, was out of water, drinking water, for the longest time. And every time you had a a press conference from the governor, he was flanked by all these white officials. And this predominantly black city of Jackson is there suffering without water. And these guys, what is their priority? Abortion. What motivates these guys? Why why is it more important to ban abortion than to, you know, provide water to a major city in Mississippi? I mean, <laughs> they want to deprive people of our access to clean and affordable water for the same reason they want to deprive them of abortion, right? Which is, it's all about, and I'm going to sound like, I'm going to use words that probably will turn people off because they sound jargony, but it's it's all about white supremacy and patriarchy. At the end of the day, it's a bunch of white men who want to dominate and control everybody else and have all the power. So, yeah, you look at a state like Mississippi, it's not a coincidence that the Republican, the white, a white supremacist Republican Party is allowing this human rights crisis to go on in Jackson while imposing a human rights crisis um, by banning abortion, because both are about getting people that don't look like them under their thumb. And, you know, the thing about Mississippi is it really goes to show that even in places that are seen as deep red America, though, like people don't want abortion bans. Like, Mississippi actually put an abortion ban on the ballot a few years ago, and the voters of Mississippi voted it down. So, like, the Republican Party is is so extreme that even Republicans don't agree with their policies. And again, I'm speaking with Amanda Marcotte, a feminist author, blogger, and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America, and Truth Itself. And her latest article at Salon is so much for Leave It to the States, Republicans Test the Waters with a Federal Abortion Ban. So, Amanda, do you think, though, that Lindsey Graham's effort, of course, is, is meant to try and stop the bleeding in terms of women in this country registering to vote and they're going to vote Democrat? And they're obviously, the Republicans have, have really, you know, <laughs> been shocked by this response to their major topic on their wish list, which is to ban abortions. So this is obviously a cosmetic effort on Senator Lindsey Graham's part, but isn't it going to have the same effect as the ban itself? In other words, is anybody going to take this seriously? Is it really going to help the Republicans, or is it going to motivate women even more? You know, the idea of a national ban under the conditions that Lindsey Graham laid out. And, of course, you know, once it goes to the, the states, God knows what they'll do. Yeah, I mean, the idea here is to give Republicans a talking point they can pivot to so they don't have to talk about the fact that they plan to ban all abortions nationwide for everybody. Um, so, you know, there's a bunch of Republicans that are going to be doing debates in the next couple months, and they're going to be asked about this. And instead of telling their voters the truth, which is they will vote for any abortion ban, no matter how restrictive that comes down the pipe, they're going to pivot and say, well, I support Lindsey Graham's bill to ban it after 15 weeks. And the idea is to make it sound like that's what's up for grabs is these later in pregnancy abortions. And that's just a lie. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an attempt to play, you know, it, it's basically a bait and switch, right? You know, and the idea is to make people feel like abortion bans don't affect them. But the fact of the matter is they do. And they they do no matter who you are, because 
You may think, I, one of the articles I linked in my piece today was to CNN today, and it was an interview with this woman who had to go to, a Texan who had to go to New Mexico because she was like probably four or five months along, and then she found out that her her fetus had all these just terrible organ failure problems. And he was going to die the second he was born, and she just didn't want to go through with it. So she had to get an abortion because it's banned in New Mexico because it's banned in Texas. And the fact of the matter, she said, until all this happened to her, she was, quote, 100% pro-life. People tell themselves a story about how it can't happen to them, that these things don't affect them, and they do. Even if you can't personally get pregnant, you probably know and love people who can, and this affects them. Yeah, but your article points out, we were talking earlier, Amanda, about Mississippi and the attitude of the white um, clique that run the place in a kind of feudal way and how they have total disregard for the citizens of Jackson, Mississippi, who were without water for so long and probably still are, actually, that they don't care about poor people. And it's isn't that implicit in what... Brett Kavanaugh said in his concurrence in the Dobbs decision, he's more or less assuring, you know, middle class and upper middle class and wealthy American women that, oh, you can just get an abortion, just fly or drive to a different state. Isn't that the apartheid issue here about abortion in this country? It's really something that affects low income people. And uh, this is what's so cruel about these decisions. Yeah, it's it's so complicated because it's not untrue that you see a lot of liberals kind of glibly say, oh, you know, white women and women of means will always be safe. And it's like, I think, you know, that's that's a, a talking point. I think people are trying to be helpful because they want to they want to focus attention on the fact that abortion bans definitely disproportionately affect people, uh, low income people young people, people of color, just marginalized folks. But it's also just not true, I think, we found today. Like, Kavanaugh was trying to divide women against each other by saying, by implying that white women and women of means are going to be safe, whereas it's only going to affect everyone else. So, like, implicitly, you middle-class suburban voters shouldn't care, right? But it's also not true. Like... They want to ban it for everybody. I, I think it's, first of all, like the notion that having these other privileges does, means you're somehow unwomaned and you're not like, they don't see you as the second sex is ridiculous. I mean, all women of all classes are still women in their eyes and therefore subservient. Second of all, like very specifically like the kind of like white upper class and upper middle class people that dominate the Republican party and their, their priorities dominate the Republican party. They especially don't want women to be fully equal because they depend on women as housewives. They depend on women as uh, support systems. They don't like, these these white men don't want their wives to be equal to them. They don't want their daughters to be equal to them. They may want their wives and daughters to be up the racial hierarchy from people of color, but they definitely still want them down a step from men. And, like, we shouldn't lose sight of that. Right, but then it's so obvious, though, isn't it, that this is, as you mentioned earlier, Amanda, this is about the patriarchy and... If they give rights to an unborn child, even a fetus or even a day-old zygote, I mean, it's ridiculous, the obsession they have. But giving rights to the unborn over the rights to the woman who's carrying it is such an insult to the woman. And I, I take it that that's a part of this reaction across the country amongst women is that this really is the patriarchy, you know, going a bridge too far. Yeah, I think that Republicans have really underestimated how many Americans, like, truly understand where the anti-abortion sentiment is coming from. At the end of the day, like, 
when you, especially when you kind of talk to anti-choicers, you begin to realize that they live in this glib counter reality that has no relationship to how normal people live, right? Students for Life, for instance, one of the most prominent anti-abortion organizations in the country just tweeted a few days ago, consent to sex is consent to childbirth. And that's what they think. And often you'll be like, you'll start talking to them and you'll be like, well, you know, life is kind of messy. Not every pregnancy is wanted. And then they'll just glibly say, well, you should just not have sex until you're ready to have a baby. And I think that you don't need to necessarily use jargony words like patriarchy, even though I I didn't, to understand that that's ridiculous. That's an absolutely ridiculous point of view. It has never been the case that people have ever successfully abstained until they were ready to give birth. They aren't going to start now. And and there's just such an out-of-touchness of this point of view. And I, I, I think that is really beginning to, like, what is affecting people is they're beginning to realize, oh, yeah, these Republicans are as out of control, fundamentalist nuts, as Democrats always said they were. Well, Amanda Marcotte, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Amanda Marcotte, who's a feminist author, blogger, and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America, and Truth Itself. And her latest article at Salon is So Much for Leave It to the States. Republicans test the waters with a federal abortion ban. We're going to take a brief station break and then with what's left of the global order deteriorating before our eyes, we'll examine what could be done to avoid a worsening relations with China and possibly Russia too. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Walt, the Robert and Renee Belfort Professor of International Affairs at Harvard University. He's the author of a number of books, including The Origins of Alliances, Revolution and War, Taming American Power, The Global Response to U.S. Primacy. And his latest book is The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. And he is the co-author of an article in Foreign Affairs, How to Build a Better Order, Limiting Great Power Rivalry in an Anarchic World. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Walt. Nice to be back with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Stephen. And you've taken on quite a challenge here in suggesting that there are ways to improve relations with China, that we don't have to be in a collision course. In terms of Russia, I'm not sure what can be done since the situation there is deteriorating and Putin is under so much pressure from the nationalists on his right uh, that he may feel the need to escalate a war that he appears to be losing. Plus you've got a cutoff of energy to Europe, uh, which is going to increase tensions there and perhaps bring about a recession. So this is quite a challenge. So give us a sense of where you find some hope. Well, uh, we recognize, my co-author Donnie Roderick and I recognize that this is a challenge, and one of the things we don't do in the article is try to spell out in detail what the norms or rules that uh, should be governing great power relations and relations with other countries as well. Uh, That's going to have to be determined by those countries themselves, and we couldn't uh, sit down and write all those rules and expect them to be adopted. Uh, Instead, we begin with the recognition that the current world order is eroding for the reasons you described. Uh, China's rise is challenging a lot of the existing status quo. Uh, We are uh, already at complete loggerheads uh, with Russia. There's a great dissatisfaction with the sort of hyper-globalization as practiced from, say, 1995 to 2016. Uh, uh, Didn't 
uh, benefit people as much economically as uh, as people had hoped. Um, and the so-called rules-based order that the United States tried to make a global order uh, also didn't work out all that well because the United States, of course, uh, was willing to break those rules uh, when it saw fit. So the question is, what could be done to create a less bad world than we appear to be heading into? One where China and the United States are increasingly at odds, don't really cooperate, may decouple their economic relationship, uh, et cetera. And you can multiply all those problems. And what we do is lay out a framework uh, that doesn't try to specify the answers in detail, but suggests a set of categories that countries could agree to use to structure their relations and their negotiations with each other um, without necessarily agreeing what issues belong in which category or without agreeing in advance what the solution is going to be. Um, and just to do it briefly, the four categories are basically actions we would agree to that would be prohibited, that no one would be able to engage in. Uh, second, actions where we could actually bargain, where we might be able to achieve a better outcome if we make some concessions in exchange for concessions by the other side. Uh, trade negotiations are a perfect example of this. And then third, uh, areas where we can't necessarily compromise, so we're going to defend our interests through unilateral action, through independent action, but we would agree that these would have to be well calibrated, that you can take action to protect yourself, but say not to escalate a quarrel, or you don't use uh, your unilateral actions to try to put the other side at a permanent disadvantage. And then the final category is actions where, say, an agreement between the United States and China or the United States and Iran might have repercussions for third parties, and that's where you basically need multilateral buy-in. You need to bring lots of different countries into the agreement. So without saying which issues go where, those are the four boxes you would try to put things into. And we would basically be asking uh, major powers to agree to follow that framework and use that to structure the conversations they subsequently have. So, Stephen Walt, if there is a referee between the great powers, it would be the United Nations. And they, of course, the great powers are on the Security Council, where each of them has a veto power. Is that a place to begin, the Security Council, notwithstanding the fact that they have a veto power? But in other words, who and how are you going to shame the, the big powers into giving up a little in order to have a better world? Well, there's sort of two answers to that. One is our scheme does not assume the uh, existence of a referee, right? One of the problems in international politics is there is no central power that can enforce order, uh, you know, make the rules. It's not like a, a well-functioning domestic government where you have a single authority that can ultimately decide. So there is no referee. This is ultimately going to be states following uh, their own self-interest. Uh, some aspects of the United Nations, and especially the UN Charter, uh, are helpful here, though. So under that category of prohibited actions, uh, states have already agreed to a number of principles within the UN Charter by putting their names to that charter that they won't do. The acquisition of territory by force, for example, is one good example, and that's embedded in the UN Charter. Now, that's not to say that countries don't violate that norm on occasion, as Russia has been doing in Ukraine. But it's clear that when you violate a norm like that, you do pay a price, right? Your reputation suffers. It's seen as an act of aggression widely around the world. And in the case of Russia and Ukraine, it prompted a very powerful counterreaction by the United States and NATO. So there's no referee that can prevent states from breaking rules or violating things they've agreed to, but they do pay a price. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we like to try and establish uh, how, how powerful those norms might be, get as many countries to buy into them as possible, because I think it does have a deterrent impact. Can't prevent bad things from happening, but it should minimize the number of times they happen. So in terms of the war in, in Ukraine, a number of analysts have suggested that the U.S. and NATO got off on the wrong foot by framing it as a battle for a democratic state against a non-democratic aggressor, whereas it would have been more effective to make it a, an issue of sovereignty. And we know that China is quite often expresses great concern for sovereignty. They don't like being interfered with or lectured to. So 
is sovereignty a place to start? Uh, I, I think it is. So, um, so one of the things that you could imagine being in that prohibited box is is uh, overt attempts to destabilize other governments, uh, either you know violent regime change or trying to undercut the legitimacy of another country. So one of the things that would probably have to go into this is a recognition that you know we would not be trying to undermine or overthrow the Chinese Communist Party. We would not be trying to undermine uh, the government of Iran, not because we approve of either of those governments or the way they're organized, but because we recognize the principle of sovereignty. And of course, they would have to uh, accept that they wouldn't do anything like that uh, in reverse uh, towards us. So there are going to be have to be some places where we start by saying, here's certain things we all agree not to do. Um, there, it may be a relatively small number uh, of items, for example, but it's not a zero. And then you, of course, would have other issues where uh, there's more horse trading going on. Uh, arms control being another perfect example there where countries can make themselves better off by reaching agreements where they agree to stop doing some of the things, stop building some of the weapons they're building, provided others make concessions as well and stop doing some of what they're doing. And one can multiply uh, other examples of that as well. So in terms of what governments should do for their people, and a lot of governments are kleptocratic and only the elite takes care of itself and the, the people suffer, and there are degrees to which governments around the world take care of their own people, could there be some kind of charter in that regard that you know your, your real focus should be on taking care of your own people, not you know, waging wars against your neighbors? Um, that's a nice idea, and it's sort of embedded in the idea of the responsibility to protect that many people have proposed. I think that would be hard to fit in within our framework, and it would be hard to get global buy-in uh, for that. I think that's going to be one of those places where states are going to have to agree to disagree. And one of the things our framework allows for is that there are going to be some places where we're simply not going to agree. Um, now, the, the issues you pointed out to about corruption and kleptocracy are really serious. But let me give you another example. We accept that it's uh, that uh, different countries can have different speed limits uh, for their highways, that that's an act that reflects national preferences. So we don't tell Germany they have to lower their speed limits. They don't tell us that we have to lower ours. That has impact on other people, though. Right. If Germany raises its speed limit, that increases its energy consumption. That means that the price of oil goes up and that affects everyone. So there are some issues where we agree, even though it has consequences for others, there's sort of we allow a certain amount of national preference as well. And I think that the difficulty of starting to impose limits on the internal character of states, whether it's human rights or corruption. First of all, there's the problem of hypocrisy, right? That, that we're not necessarily as perfect as we like to think on some of those dimensions. But second, it immediately poisons the relationship because it implies that you might be trying to change another country's form of government and alter its way of life from the outside. And that almost inevitably uh, leads to a troubled relationship with that country. Uh, and that's what we're trying to avoid here. We recognize that there's still going to be suspicion. There's still going to be competition and rivalry between countries. But the trick is to try and minimize that as much as possible while retaining uh, you know, the security and the benefits we get from trade and cooperation. And how about the notion that we're all in lifeboat earth together and we're being threatened by a common enemy of global warming and it's going to create massive havoc and already you've seen from violent you know weather events etc it ought to be incredibly clear to everybody that this is happening now uh, the chinese are actually being fairly forward thinking in that regard uh, russia may be a problem because it its entire economy seems to be dependent upon fossil fuels so is there a lifeline there? Yeah, and in fact, that's one of the reasons I think we, we got excited by this topic is that it's uh, uh, absolutely uh, critical here. One of the things that our framework tries to do is move countries away from a very simple dichotomy of saying, well, they're an enemy and they're a friend or you know, friend and foe, uh, and say that there are going to be some issues where uh, we want to be able to put 
bracket them and say, uh, here we have to be able to cooperate. And climate change, I think, is the the uh, absolutely um, most uh, you know vivid example of that. Um, and therefore, we need to be able to separate and wall off that element of cooperation, where there's going to be a lot of back and forth and compromise and adjustment and discussion from the other areas where we might be competing. Um, and what our framework does is it allows countries to put different issues in different boxes. It allows them to uh, look for areas where they can cooperate, where they can both make themselves better off. Everybody can be better off by cooperating, even if there's some distinct area where they're going to continue to compete in a, in a variety of different ways. Now, the Biden administration, it's worth saying, has been trying to do that vis-a-vis -vis China, uh, saying, you know, look, we're going to be uh, cooperative competitors. We're not going to uh, fight on every issue. And the Chinese have been somewhat reluctant. They've been sort of saying, look, you, you can't pick and choose here. You can't order a la carte. You either have a bad relationship with us or you can have a good relationship with us. And again, our hope is that if uh, countries were willing to sort of start from scratch with the framework we've proposed, that kind of um, you know either either or dichotomy uh, would get diluted, and you'd be able to cooperate on areas like climate that affect everyone on the planet, uh, even if you were competing in areas that were more narrowly national security focused. Well, just in closing, Stephen Walt. We went through the Cold War. Trillions were spent or arguably wasted. We were lucky to escape a nuclear holocaust. The lessons are pretty clear of what a sterile and fruitless path that is. So is there a possibility that that argument could restrain the U.S. and China into what many think is a beginning of an arms race of sorts, or at least a big power rivalry focused on military power? I, I certainly hope so. Um, and, and obviously the lessons of the Cold War and other rivalries are sobering uh, in lots of different ways. But in a sense, one needs more than just a historical lesson of what mistakes we've made in the past. You need to have a path forward, a sort of practical way of proceeding to try and build a world order that would be better than you might otherwise get. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be harmony. It's not going to be sweetness and light 24-7. But I think you can imagine a world where great powers cooperate much more than they might otherwise. And the framework we laid out in this article is at least our attempt to suggest a path forward that could get us to a better outcome. Well, Stephen Walt, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Pleasure talking with you as always, Ian. Well, thank you, Stephen. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Walt, who's the Robert and Renee Belfort Professor of International Affairs at Harvard University. He's the author of a number of books, including The Origins of Alliances, Revolution and War, Taming American Power, The Global Response to U.S. Primacy. And his latest book is The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. And he's the co-author of an article in Foreign Affairs, How to Build a Better Order, Limiting Great Power Rivalry in an Anarchic World. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking to the shift to the right in the Swedish elections as one of the most tolerant countries in the world takes an anti-immigrant turn. I don't want to set the world on fire I just want to start a flame in your heart. In my heart, I have. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sherry Berman, a professor of political science at Barnard College of Columbia University, whose research interests include European history and politics, the development of democracy, populism and fascism, and the history of the left. And she's the author of Democracy and Dictatorship, From the SEN Regime to the Present Day. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sherry Berman. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's been a, something of a surprise in the Swedish elections where the Sweden Democrats, which is a far-right party, they now seem to be a part of the largest bloc, this right-wing opposition bloc, uh, who hold a very slim lead over the ruling left-wing bloc. At least that's the preliminary results. 
I take it uh, Wednesday we'll finally know, but it's pretty close, is it not? That's correct. The blocks are almost um, evenly matched. There's um, a couple of seats or two or three seats difference in Parliament, and the vote share difference is, you know, sort of less than 1%. So that was more or less predicted by the polls, but given the very small margins, they didn't know which of the two blocks would end up exactly on top. But it seems that the theme in terms of campaigns and in terms of campaigns issues are emigration, emigration, emigration. And that's not dissimilar in other countries like Italy, uh, Vox in Spain, and other countries that have turned to the right, uh, Poland, of course, and uh, Hungary. Hungary, of course, where the leader did make emigration a singular issue. So is it as simple as it appears that emigration or rejections of emigration are really what's driving this move to the right in Sweden? Well, so that's really a great question because um, the Sweden Democrats, which is, as you said, the sort of right right wing populist party, that party has been growing over the last several electoral cycles and now reached its best vote share ever at about 20 percent of the vote, making it the second largest party after the Social Democrats. So the question is, you know, what's caused them to grow and what in particular has caused them to achieve such a really outstanding result at this election? And as you said, you know, particularly with regards to the the most recent vote, the main factor is that the issues that this party emphasizes were emphasized in the election. So not really just immigration or immigration directly, but rather um, law and order type issues were really central in the debate. And those are issues, obviously, that the Sweden Democrats focus on. And they do, as you say, connect it, although somewhat less openly than they did in the past, to immigration. So the more that the issues that they sort of specialize in, so to speak, were at the forefront of political debate, um, the more the party benefits. So surely that is a very large part of what's going on. Swedes in general do not come out at all in a comparative sense as particularly xenophobic or racist. In fact, if you look at the numbers for Europe in general, Swedes almost always come out as among the least racist and xenophobic. But issues around, as I said, law and order, very high um, rates of gang criminality, an extraordinary, particularly for Sweden, number of shootings that dominated the headlines over the past year. These issues have made a lot of people nervous and made people feel like the left-wing parties had not dealt very well with these issues over the past couple of electoral cycles. But Sherry Berman, surely that's not to say that there are roots of uh, of Nazism and fascism in Sweden, not necessarily dominant, but during World War II, the king was fairly pro-Nazi. Goering's wife was a Swedish aristocrat. So what are the Sweden Democrats' roots in terms of white nationalism and neo-Nazism? Well, so the Sweden Democrats, like a lot of other right-wing populist parties in Europe, do have really nasty roots. And in particular, this party um, does have roots in a sort of neo-Nazi movement in Sweden. But like its counterparts elsewhere, the most obvious comparison is with the National Front, now the National Rally in France. This party has tried very hard to distance itself from those roots precisely because it knows that it's not going to get a large share of the votes as long as it presents itself as an openly xenophobic, openly racist party with neo-Nazi roots. In fact, interestingly, in the run-up to the election, the party itself released the kind of white paper on its history, which openly acknowledged the neo-Nazi roots of the party, the fact that there had been a large number of people with neo-Nazi ties in the party. And clearly this was an attempt to say, look, we understand that this party has had this profile in the past, but we are trying to signal to you voters that we are not the same party, that we are willing to acknowledge that this kind of history exists, but we are going to move beyond it. And so the party itself and its leader in particular, Jimmy Okeson, has become a standard feature on news programs, on debates. He is extremely presentable. He is young. He is a good debater. He tries very hard, successfully, I would say, not to say anything too offensive. And so the party, in order to get votes and 
in order to make itself acceptable to the other parties on the right, has tried very hard to distance itself from those roots, precisely as Marine Le Pen did in France. So Sweden's version of compassionate conservatism, <laughs> how would you describe well, I don't it? Know if, I don't know if I would go quite that far, but it's certainly an attempt very open and very clearly directed to let voters know that they can vote for this party without feeling like they are voting for a party of neo-Nazis and white supremacists. And again, I'm speaking with Sherry Berman, a professor of political science at Barnard College of Columbia University, whose research interests include European history and politics, the development of democracy, populism and fascism, and the history of the left. And she's the author of Democracy and Dictatorship, From the ASEAN Regime to the Present Day. But a big part of the attraction of the, for this party is surely, as you mentioned, I mentioned the broad term immigration, but emigration tied to crime and violence. Now, if you watch Swedish dramas on television, uh, which I think are fairly good, I mean, I like the, the well-written and the acting, and the casting is more interesting than, than we have over here, where you have sort of glamorous people as opposed to more authentic-looking people. So, and you've got, you know, these famous Swedish crime writers have become a kind of industry in Sweden. And almost without exception in these dramas that I watch on Netflix and Amazon, the bad guys are immigrants. I mean, it's just inescapable. Well, so look, I would say that, you know, the sort of classic Swedish and in fact Scandinavian crime dramas dramas are, are sort of a bit of a puzzle because if you know the countries, Sweden and the other parts of Scandinavia or the Nordic countries more generally well, a lot of these dramas um, are quite funny because up until relatively recently, the amount of crime in these countries was relatively low. And I would joke to a lot of my friends that there were more crimes and in particular murders committed on TV screens in Scandinavia than there were actually um, you know, on the ground. This is no longer true, particularly in Sweden, which has really seen a dramatic rise in crime. And in particular, as I said, in murders and gang criminality over the past five to 10 years. And this is really a dramatic, dramatic change in Sweden. And it is true that, uh, you know, disproportionately the people involved in these crimes, both in committing them and oftentimes in being victims of them, are indeed people with immigrant backgrounds, oftentimes second generation rather than um, you know, first generation immigrants. So there is a real problem here with integration. There is a real problem with socioeconomic divisions. And, you know, the other parties have not done a good enough job, according to voters, in either dealing with or even confronting these problems. And this has really left an opening for the right wing populists to make hay of these issues. So, Sherry Berman, how, how does this look then in terms of the rest of Europe, uh, in terms of the rise of uh, the far right? You mentioned Marine Le Pen, who took 41.5% of the vote in the second round of the recent French presidential elections. In Spain, you have the far-right Vox party on the rise. I mentioned, of course, law and justice in Poland and Orban's party in Hungary, uh, having already moved to the right, and they kind of protect each other from the EU uh, whenever they try to censure one of the other of the two countries. Poland comes to Hungary's defense and Hungary comes to Poland's defense. But there's also an interesting rise of the right in Italy with Giorgia Maloney, who is an unmarried mother. She rails against woke ideology and cancel culture and the LGBT lobby and the globalist left and uh, looks as if she's going to be uh, Italy's first female leader. So there are different countries, different leaders, somewhat different in their outlook. So what does it mean in, in an overall move in, in Europe in the broadest sense? So uh, as you sort of mentioned, there is a general trend and there are some um, important specifics. So for instance, in the Swedish context, this sort of railing against woke ideology, which you see in the United States and in some parts of Europe, that wasn't particularly prominent. Neither is this right-wing populist party pro Russian in any way, um, you know, and so that is an important distinction. What they are linked by are people who are concerned about law and order issues, immigration, 
national identity issues. I will say, though, that I think it is very important to differentiate between Eastern and Western Europe, and in fact, between Western Europe and the United States. So why? Because there's actual real threats to democracy in Eastern Europe. Hungary is no longer a democracy. Poland is very iffy. In the United States, actually, the indicators are much, much worse than they are in Western Europe. They're really as nasty as we think something like the National Front or the Sweden Democrats are in Sweden. Democracy is not in peril in these countries. That is to say, you do not have to worry about waking up tomorrow and finding out that a party has taken power or a prime minister or a president has taken power who is likely to really undermine in some fundamental way either the institutions or the rules of the game of democracy. We should be worried about that in the United States, and it has already happened in Eastern Europe. So first of all, as nasty as these parties may be, I think we should be careful not to equate them with, you know, I've heard the term fascism, for instance, thrown around. I think that is a very bad and indeed irresponsible use of those terms. I think these parties are in general playing off some real fears and concerns that other parties have not addressed well. Um, and so I would imagine that the better these uh, these governments are, that is to say non-populist governments in dealing with the problems that confront their societies, integration um, in general, um, socioeconomic integration in particular, that is to say in the labor market, that a lot of these concerns will, um, if not disappear, then diminish. So I think it's very important to take these parties seriously and to think about what they represent and how to deal with those in ways that are consistent with liberalism and democracy. But I don't think it is wise to conflate what's going on in Western Europe with what's going on in Eastern Europe, or for that matter, frankly, in the United States. Well, let's compare things to the United States then, because we have a former president who is clear that by in stacking the judiciary, we no longer have an independent judiciary, at least in the case of the judge that basically stopped the government from investigating the theft and missing classified documents of the highest uh, classification in the land. I mean, it's an extraordinary breach of national security and even more extraordinary coming from a president or a former president. And he controls the Republican Party and dominates it. And his personal inability to accept a defeat in an election has led to uh, this Stop the Steal movement metastasizing into a bedrock belief in the Republican Party. And they are bent on, and their model, of course, on the right of the Republican, or so-called MAGA Republicans, which is the distinction that President Biden is trying to make, their hero and their model is uh, Orban in Hungary. So in the context of discussing the move the movement uh, and the growth of the far right in European politics. How would you compare the growth of the far right in American politics, and particularly in the sense that they are bent, it seems, on creating a one-party state here in the United States? Well, I think that that gets that that a good way to answer that question is by circling back to something I said previously, right? Which is, you'll notice that the right-wing parties that we're talking about in Western Europe, the National Front. Uh, the Sweden Democrats and others, these parties have actually moderated over time, right? So they recognize that if they want to increase their vote share and become sort of government capable, right, they had to moderate. We have exactly the opposite trend in the United States and for that matter in places like Hungary as well. So Orban initially ran as a pretty straightforward conservative. He turned himself into or was secretly all along, who knows, um, an authoritarian after coming to power. He did not sell himself to the electorate as someone who was going to undermine democracy in Hungary. He sold himself to the electorate as a conservative. And then when he came to power, began undermining democracy in, um, in Hungary, right? What we have in the United States is the Republican Party that has radicalized under Donald Trump. That is to say, has become increasingly willing to accept outright falsifications, and other kinds of moves that are clearly designed to warp, if not undermine, the rules of the democratic game. That's not what's happened in Western Europe. Now, 
It's important, however, in the United States, right, that we understand the difference between opposing the Republicans for policies we don't like and opposing the Republicans for doing things that undermine democracy, right? So appointing conservative judges, that is totally okay as long as the rules of the game are followed um, that you know require certain kinds of procedures in order for judges to be um, you know, appointed. We cannot oppose judges because we don't like what they do as long as, again, they are, you know, sort of more or less applying the law in a legitimate way. What we can, for instance, oppose is the kinds of moves that happen to, um, you know, during the end point of Obama's term when um, he was barred essentially by the Republicans from appointing a Supreme Court justice. And then the Republicans in turn rammed through a Supreme Court justice in the run up to the last election. That is clearly extremely problematic, right? As is trying to get people elected for things like Secretary of State who believe in lies about both the 2020 election and about election administration that really are not consistent with the democratic rules of the game. So it's very important if we wanna protect our democracy not to oppose things or not to oppose things in the same way, just because we dislike the policies, but rather to focus on protecting the institutional and normative foundations of democracy so as to be able to bring along as many Americans as possible in the endeavor to make sure our democracy continues and thrives. Well, I think that's an important distinction, although I would argue, uh, Sherry, that the judge in Florida, Judge Cannon, uh, most of the legal community thinks that her ruling um, blocking the investigation of, by the Department of Justice and the FBI into these missing highly classified documents was more of a political decision rather than a uh, one based on the law. Well, look, the, the decision to appoint a sort of special prosecutor or investigator, I'm not a legal scholar, so I am mm -hmm. not going to say anything about that particular ruling. Um, but I will say that there is a very um, lively debate among academics, legal scholars, political scientists about, you know, how to deal with um, charges against a president or even a former president, right? Now, obviously, democracy means everybody is subject to the same laws. That's sort of absolutely necessary for democracy. There's no laws for one group and then a set of laws for another. However, however, prosecuting what seemed like prosecuting your opponents has to be done with great care, right? Because that is not a precedent you want to take lightly. So again, I'm not going to say anything about this particular ruling in Florida because I do not feel I have the expertise about that, but there are, as is often the case, two competing goods here, right? One is everybody is subject to the same law. It does not matter who you are. The second is you should be very careful about seeming to use the law to prosecute your opponents. I'm not suggesting that that is what's going on here at all on the part of the Democrats. What I am suggesting, though, is that there should be special care taken with that kind of thing because that precedent would be awful. And so I think what we have to do is very carefully think about these kinds of issues rather than simply jumping to support, quote unquote, our team. Point well taken, and I thank you for joining us here today, Sherry Berman. It's my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Sherry Berman, who's a professor of political science at Barnard College of, of Columbia University, whose research interests include European history and politics, the development of democracy, populism and fascism, and the history of the left. And she's the author of Democracy and Dictatorship, From the Ancien Regime to the Present Day. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. 
Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past